From a whisper to a roar, our voice has grown in strength and volume. Echoes from our past guide our future as we explore the woman's voice. Okay, I am really excited about introducing you to this absolute rock star. Now, not rock star in the sense that she's a singer, although she can sing. This rock star is a lady who is really changing the front of innovation in the legal sector, particularly. Please welcome Anna Lazinski. And we I'm hear the crowd go, rah. I'm doing a dance for everybody <laughs> that can't that can't see me. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> Welcome, darling. It's so great to have you here. I have been looking forward to this interview. And, you know, I could sit and chat to you all day, every day about everything from legals to solving the world's problems to drinking chai and, you know, doing detoxes. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's an honour. We are going to take a little deep dive today and I hope that I'm going to challenge you to, you know, expose a little bit more about the mind behind Anna Lezinski. And so let's get into it and ask you the first question how has your voice led you here today I love this question and all of these questions are going to challenge me because I'm so used to talking about uh, career paths and innovation uh, and it's really fabulous to be able to have this conversation with you so interestingly enough when I was reflecting on this question The first example that came to mind was when I was five and I actually had a negative experience using my voice and the story goes I was in prep, I was learning English from Sesame Street and Play School and I remember uh, the teacher uh, very vividly and we were in a classroom sitting down with our legs crossed And we were talking about the alphabet. We were learning about the alphabet. And uh, the teacher posed a question to the class saying, "Um, what are the last three letters of the alphabet? And there was silence in the room. And I shot up my hand uh, and waited for her to call on me to respond. And she called on some other students she volunteered them instead and those uh, kids were getting the answer wrong and so I kept my hand shot up and finally she called upon me and I said xyz and in fact she said well no that's incorrect Uh, and I said you know I sort of sat there and thought oh okay um I swear it's, I swear it's X, Y, Z. But what was interesting is she'd pick me up on the accent because obviously here in Australia, it's Z, it's not Z. But because I spoke Polish at home and I was still learning English and off American television shows, complemented by my schooling, uh, it was Z in my mind. And what was interesting when I reflect back is that, um, that kind of, and, and, and it was quite 
publicly humiliating in the way that she addressed that point. Mm. Um, so there wasn't that classic constructive feedback of a really great try, you're almost there, but in fact, you know, hot tip, uh, know that you're still learning English. It's Z, not Z, um, but it's technically you know, you're on the right track. And so I remember from there on in, actually, there being a period uh, whereby I was a lot more hesitant because I'd lost my confidence a little bit to speak up. So in part by that particular experience, which I guess is in your first seven years, so, you know, we're, we're like sponges in the first seven years in terms of our conditioning. Um, but secondly, also in the playground, kids used to come up to me and I guess they were a little bit fascinated because uh, they, they knew I was from another country and I used to speak half in Polish and half in English but very confidently and so when kids used to ask me a question I would speak in this kind of mixed language and then wonder why on earth they didn't understand what I was saying because I knew what I was saying and it felt quite normal for me to be able to, you know, be bilingual and switch between the two. And, in fact, at that time I wasn't consciously switching between the two. It's just <laughs> I didn't have the words uh, all in English at the time. And uh, so that was, you know, that was really interesting. So I think because of those two kind of formative experiences very early on, there was a period of time where I... I did lose a little bit of confidence in my voice, but then I regained it uh, a few years later when I started uh, kind of my, my foray into music. And so I started playing trumpet at the age of eight and also joined uh, the primary school choirs at that time. And so I think the fabulous thing about uh, singing as a kid uh, is that it did a few things for me. It allowed me to find my voice again and in a way that conversation and day-to-day -day conversation and, and interaction in the classroom with teachers and other kids doesn't allow you to. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, it does give you that confidence back. And, you know, I, I, I certainly wasn't going to be... Um, uh, you know, the next voice superstar, um, but I could certainly sing, uh, you know, with uh, confidence and, uh, you know, and with the right training, you know, I, I was a pretty strong choir member. And then moving on from that, uh, I think I was really fortunate that because I was, you know, I loved music and then that turned into a love of drama. And so I became a performer uh, as a kid. I was um, the lead in the high school musical a few times, uh, across, you know, in primary school and in high school. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with a singing coach uh, so that I could really, you know, own own the role and, and own, uh, yeah, own my voice on stage uh, and not let all those nerves affect it. Um, and also I learned how to look after my voice at a really young age how to nurture it because as anyone would know if they've um, been part of a play uh, and particularly part of a musical where it's even more voice heavy uh, you know you go through months and months of rehearsals four or five times a week and you're actually practicing rehearsing almost every day 
And then you've got to, you know, you've got to make sure that your voice is supported all throughout that process as it's evolving and growing and developing into the role. Mm. And then it's, you know, when you're performing those in high school, you sort of have, I think, three performances in a week, but, you know, then you're on. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, yeah, I had a bit of a rocky start in summary in terms of uh, feeling into and finding my voice because of those c- couple of experiences which really stayed with me. But then I was really fortunate that through a love of music and drama and then, you know, later on debating and public speaking, uh, I really... I really did give myself permission and was given the opportunity to explore my voice across all of those uh, experiences. Fantastic journey. And I just want to explore a little bit because, as you know, I work with a lot of uh, international, different, different nationalities, people, and particularly women, and they want to automatically get rid of their accent. And obviously you came here as a young child, so you had that developmental process, which is different than coming here as an adult. What was the driving force behind you to not let that completely shatter you because you could have gone completely the other way with that with that experience with a teacher like that at that age. I know certainly my personality would have very much retreated. For the ladies out there that do have accents, what was the the drive that kept you wanting to do more and keep exploring and where did that come from? I think it's just part of who I am. Mm. Uh, I I don't, I've never, um, yeah, I've always used that feedback, if if you want to call it that, to use modern day language, as a driver to keep improving. Mm. And sometimes in order to grow, you need to face into whatever is going on for you. Uh, I I don't have this personal experience because I came to Australia when I was young and so I didn't have an accent. But I know my older sister, who's 17 years my senior, uh, she still has an accent and so does my middle sister, who's 12 years my senior. She also still has an accent. And so I guess I've grown up. Uh, having sympathy, not empathy, but having sympathy for uh, the different reaction one gets uh, when they speak with an accent. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I learned languages when I was little. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I've been on the other side of that where, uh, again, I was fortunate that I didn't have an accent speaking Polish because it's a native tongue for me. Although I am conscious that, you know, many years on, if I don't use my Polish regularly enough, then I can develop a bit of an accent because it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't just roll off my tongue mm-hmm. as naturally uh, as it does when I when I'm utilise it more. Yeah. But when you're learning a language, so, you know, I studied Italian, I studied French, I studied German, I studied uh, Mandarin, uh, you know, it's, it's all about perfecting the accent. 
Mm. And that is really difficult. So I've got the experience with the reverse of that uh, in, you know, and even in travelling. So when, you know, I was fortunate enough to work for a French multinational and, and in my travels to Paris, you know, I have felt my, my French is okay and I certainly understand a lot more than I can speak. But I do have that hesitance of, oh, I don't want to use it because I'm going to sound silly and I know how much the French uh, are sticklers for pronunciation and uh, for one's accent Mm. Uh, and they almost don't hear you, right, if you're Mm. not articulating it uh, in their way. So it's very different here in Australia with that experience, I, I feel, particularly today, is that we are much more forgiving with accents because we've got so many accents. We, we, we're much more accepting. You know, when I was growing up, it was a lot more exotic to hear someone with an accent, mm-hmm. particularly growing up in a country town. But I, I feel today that we have so much more compassion and space for accents uh so i don't believe that it's necessary to get rid of an accent completely but you do have to get a grasp of the language and and practice it and i think that you know i work with one particular lady who's russian and her accent's very thick but there is no misinterpretation when she speaks we understand exactly what she's saying so and I know that you've you have a, a huge following on social media, and that's growing exponentially. When did you first consciously know that you had a voice that could impact other people's lives? Oh, you mean on social media specifically? Uh, could be on social media, but I think that there's an intuition in you where you know that you've got something to say and that people need to hear it and that you can make an impact on people's lives. Would you agree? It's a really it's it's really hard for me to pinpoint the the, the time. Hmm. Um However, I would say I would say that I realized I would have the potential to have that impact when I decided that that's what I was going to go for. Mm-hmm. So I'd been on on LinkedIn specifically uh, for many years. And I used it as effectively my automated Rolodex. So rather than collecting business cards, that's how I, that's how I began. And I had this uh, very strict policy of I won't connect with you unless I've met with you in person. Uh, and as I, I think as I became more senior as well, and was privy to more conversations and was networking. Um, And I've always networked, but I was, you know, networking, I guess, in in different circles and having different conversations that I realised the power, I guess, of uh, not just the one-to-one but the Mm one-to-many. And certainly when... 
uh, as I was an early adopter of innovation uh, within our within the company in my last role within the global legal function, but but to an extent an early adopter uh, within the Australian and New Zealand landscape. I was finding that every one-to-one conversation I was having, or not every, but many of the one-to-one conversations I was having uh, had a particular slant. And I realised that there was an opportunity to actually shed a lot of positivity and a lot of light on transformation and innovation. And the only way that I could do that uh, in an accelerated fashion was to shift to one to many. Mm. And once I'd reconciled in my head and decided this is one of my operating principles and I want to share more around that, well, then I guess that gave birth to uh, a more frequent and regular presence of posting my thoughts, my thoughts uh, and ideas on there and which then I guess culminated into launching my side hustle in 2018 where if I wanted it to be a success, I knew I needed to up my game in terms of living my legal life out loud uh, mm-hmm. because one uh, one can't write an ebook and launch an ebook and then retreat quietly and not say anything after that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is it's often the thing is, well, I've done that now. I don't have to do anything. The world should just come and appreciate what I've done. It just doesn't work like that anymore. You created something in your collecting your thoughts when I asked that question that I just want to highlight, and that is you created a space of silence. Now, that's a huge learning for everyone out there because in a situation where you are being interviewed, and I know that there's there's probably a lot of lawyer lawyers listening and others who have this great fear that if they're asked a question that they don't know an immediate answer to, they can't, what are they going to come out with immediately? And you created a space then and gave an example of allowing yourself just a few seconds to think. I mean, it's a normal pattern of behaviour and thank you for, for doing that. And I want everyone to take on board that you can have that moment where you can naturally think. She also didn't um and ah. She didn't, um, oh, I'm not sure, or get really nervous about it. She just sat in that space. And I know that you do practice being present and you do practice a lot of stillness. So thank you for creating that space. But you also, in your answer then, used a word many, many times, and that is you decided I think that that's something else for me to highlight is that you've made very conscious choices, haven't you, in the way that your life has led you here today. Can you spend a moment just unpacking what that means for you about making very conscious choices? Another great question, Lisa. Another great question. And and she's looking at me going, oh. (laughs) 
so many things I, I want to share in response. And I'll start kind of describing two camps. So the head part of me is by training, by legal training, very logical, strategic and problem-solving by nature. And the head part of me follows what is a pretty successful formula. I set a goal. I work really hard to achieve it. I'll try and put my own stamp on it, and it tends to be successful. Now, that's not to say that I haven't had many failure, but in general, that's the head formula. What I've been really working on and leaning into and unlocking the power of, and it's very much still a work in progress for me because the mind side is mm, strong, so incredibly strong, is the heart side. So, and, and that for me means being in flow hustling with heart and again what I mean by that is it's not a push 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 vibe it's more a I'm going to be really open to this and if it doesn't happen I'll let it go so it's this kind of I call it a a, a detached attachment nice I like that so it's not a push 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 it's a for me I just went it's a feel 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 Correct. Oh, I like that. <laughs> and so when when you say how do I develop that consciousness, it's, it's really, uh, it's the decision, which is the very masculine energy and is, is for me, my mind is probably quite masculine in the way that it operates. But what I've really tried to, start harnessing more of and particularly as I have recently stepped out on my own and started to wear some entrepreneurial shoes is tapping into the feeling part uh, and really seeing how, how does that feel and I think that within me plus having a really great set of external advisors that I can bounce ideas off, that I can sense check, that I know are going to hold space for me, but so they're also team. my team, yeah, um, my external team, you know, mm. they'll also be really honest mm. and they have my best interests at heart and they understand my brand and the brand that I'm trying to build. So I think it's really a combination. And, you know, sometimes I'm playing, you know, there, there are times when you're more in your mind, more, you know, then you're more in your heart, then you're. So um, what leads now? With, what leads, your head or your heart? As I said, I, it's still a work in progress for me. So the, my natural instinct is still to be with the head. But what I'm learning more and more is to say every time, how is my heart feeling about this? And is there congruence? And if there's incongruence, what's underneath that? So it's just giving myself more of a pause before I act. 
yes. based, based on the mind. So that stillness, that space that we were talking about before, right? Um, my heart space, I refer to as my little Lisa. Love that. Yeah. So I don't necessarily go into my heart space because all I do is get a vision of my heart. But my little Lisa is, how does little Lisa feel about this? Mm. Is this in alignment with what she wants to do and what she wants to achieve? Because she's actually really smart. Mm. And the the human form, the, the brain that I've developed through uh, experiences in life can sometimes just get so convoluted and affected that there's no clarity. So thank you for sharing that. And I think there's some absolute gold nuggets in there. I want to move on to some information that I want to pull from you because I know you're going to add such value here. As a former executive for general counsel, I would imagine you need to resolve varying degrees of conflict every day. Can you tell us what some of the ways you have learned to deal with conflict resolution are? There's probably a few uh, lessons, actually, that I've learned along the way. When I first started in the role, the Greenfield role, there'd never been a qualified lawyer in the seat. There was uh, an individual who was had a finance background and, and I would say was probably, you know, dabbling in, in some of the, the key legal issues and he did a really great job of that. At the beginning of that senior role, I probably in my head thought of myself as a fixer rather than a problem solver. And in that fixer energy, it was all about almost, you know, how, how, do, I, how, do, we, how do we resolve this as quick as possible? Whereas in a problem solving space, what I started to practice is allowing everyone to get out of their system, whatever they wanted to get out of their system and listening really intently. And when I mean listening, not only active listening as, as we know it, you know, in its, in its theory, but also reading between the lines. So sensing into people's energy when they were saying things what was going on with their body language, why they perhaps maybe felt nervous. And usually that was because they'd never spoken to a lawyer before and they had all these stereotypes and biases or assumptions about what that's like and what that experience is like. And I think what being around an executive table teaches you is that it's really important to listen. And the more that you understand the nuances of who you're working with and the personalities that you're dealing with, then as a problem solver, you can draw on your toolkit in order to make sure that you're discharging your professional duties as a lawyer 
but also taking people on the journey with you mm. because as lawyers we had this incredible training we speak almost a different language sometimes and what my last role taught me more than any of my other roles is that as i said earlier people have an have a conditioning around what it's like dealing with a lawyer and i guess one of my my missions was to break those barriers down and to really come across as a problem solver with an energy that hey i'm i'm just another brain around the table trying mm-hmm. to help you and the collective achieve your goals and it mightn't be linear it might be multidimensional and it mightn't be the first step you want to take mightn't be the first step but of course there's going to be a first step mm. and so it just encourages more of a dialogue um rather than uh yeah and it's 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 more in the spirit of relationship building rather than i, I think coming from my you know my initial legal grooming was a little bit of let's 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 cut to the chase let's cut through the problem you know that that's a lawyer's skill they can listen to all these things they cut through the problem distill it down and then hopefully summer be able to summarize it really succinctly and say all right here are the suggested options mm. and then if they're called on to give a recommendation then they'll do that so i think it's listening is really really important being able to again feel into someone's energy and where they're coming from uh so that yeah you can use different skills depending on who you're dealing with and the problem at hand you've painted a really great picture and the thing that's coming through for me in that is do less and achieve more because you're really talking about a level of emotional intelligence trusting the gut and again going back to that word which is really creating a theme for today's podcast and that is creating space do you do you find now that you practice that and you've practiced both models that you do actually achieve more quicker than coming in with a very hard fast approach it's definitely less taxing great point yes yes yeah it's it's, it's sustainable more sustainable definitely more sustainable and you know um being a lawyer is a, is a tough gig it, it's not it's not always easy it's not always smooth sailing because you're in the business of dealing with problems mm-hmm. uh and so i would agree with you yeah it's 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 about experimentation moving too because for yeah. some people if they want to step into that what i've described as a you know a fixed persona well maybe that makes them feel more optimal and you know through that they can tap in but i think the fundamental skills are still the same no mm. matter what space suit how you want to describe the space suit that you're in in that particular mm. moment but but i would also just add in a crisis situation uh 
it's it, you know it's it's interesting because you need to move fast you need to make decisions fast sometimes and so it becomes much harder to create that space but um I think that's where the lawyer training is really good because particularly if there's some emotion that, that's going around, um, then you can observe that and then again be quite mindful in the way that you respond but still move forward pretty quickly if that's what the situation allows. Mm. Anna, I know that... You and I have had conversations about the legal industry and retaining your femininity within that space. One of the things that I see as a vocal coach working with so many female leaders in the industry is that they try and take on a very, very masculine tone. And one of the common complaints that I hear from women is that they go to the table with an idea and that table falls flat and then a, a male colleague comes back next week with the same idea, repurposed, delivers that idea and it, and it gets uh, received with open arms. So that, that's a very common frustration. So there's a two-part question. Have you ever struggled to make yourself heard at the table while retaining your femininity and your authenticity? And what do you feel is the, the error that's being made generally by women when they're putting their ideas on the table? I've absolutely had moments where I've struggled to get my ideas across. And I think what has generally helped if I think that it is a battle worth having is perseverance because experience has taught me that when you mention something once, the conditions just might not be right. We're all distracted. We're all overstimulated. You know, now add in a layer of uncertainty with, with the pandemic. And I think sometimes, and, and I've seen this happen to men too, by the way, so I think it works both ways. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a timing thing. Or you just need to change what you're leading with or how you're pitching the idea. Yep. So I think it's, it's got to be, it's style, but it's also the substance. So, you know, we all know that if, you, if you're speaking to a CFO, he or she is going to be very numbers led. So you mm -hmm. need to be prepared to have a discussion that is based on a quantitative analysis, not on a, not a qualitative one. If you're dealing with a marketer, again, depending on how they're trained, they'll want to have a more qualitative discussion. And so you need to be able to play in both camps and then I think, you know, across somewhere in between as well, right? So you need to almost have that 
multi-dimensional approach and, and feeling to what's going to be right. How am I going to make this land for that person? Uh, preferably the first time, but maybe not. And I think as a lawyer, again, it, it depends on the seriousness of the risk involved because if you're talking about risk and protecting the company's reputation, then I think, uh, of course, it's always it's always a stakeholder's prerogative to override the advice, which I know a lot, a lot of lawyers feel really personally affronted by that. Mm. I learned not to be. They're mm. all decision, you know, they're all decisions. Mm. Uh, every day in business, we're making decisions, uh, and. In terms of your your second question, which I think was remind me about how 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 do we change that? Yeah, how do we how do we make sure that we are being heard at the table? What is this? What is the thing that you see commonly? Um, and I'm talking from a from a female perspective at the moment. How do you, women actually? ensure that they are heard at the table what are some tips that you can give the ladies on making sure that it lands and I think that you've started to answer that question with Mm. not taking it personally uh being creative in in your answers and finding different ways that's going to land for the person that's sitting in front of you and I think that the third thing I'm going to add is build strong relationships because if what you're sharing is respected, and that could be either way, whether it's you are a supportive voice of something that's being put forward around that table or whether you're a challenging voice, because we need both, um, then, you know, that comes down to how well people know you. Mm. And, and not just how well do people know you from what they judge, but it's probably how much value have you added in the past, I think particularly in a service provider role. So have you worked with that person closely enough? I always found that uh, with anyone in a business, once you'd worked with them a few times, they instantly had a different view of what your role was and what what you were like uh, after having that shared experience with you. Mm. And so you almost need to, you know, create those opportunities with with any stakeholder mm. so that people get a sense of who you are because once they have a sense of who you are, then that opens the door for there to be some trust to think, okay, well, hang on, um, you know, Lisa's saying something, we should listen. Mm. And so I think you've you, got to do the groundwork. I don't think you can yeah. sort of, you know, you can't, you, you, none of this stuff, you can unfortunately wave a magic wand and it just oh. happens, right? You, you've got to earn it in a way. Absolutely. And I think that responsibility piece is in there as well. And and having that greater sense of who you are um, brings a certain level of commitment. You know, when you bring something, something to the table, you've got to be really connected with that you've got to really believe in it because then that is going to deliver in a way that people are going to listen Mm. you can't come in with a an ounce of self-doubt and try and deliver something effectively at the table because it's just 
not going to land. And I think also, you know, a point I made just even about my childhood imprinting, you know, to build on your point is that, and if you're not heard the first time, don't stop there. Mm. Just keep trying and ask for, you know, and ask for feedback because it may be that you've just chosen the wrong battle and yeah. you've misread that in the room. And I think you've got, in a way, an advantage in, in having your experience that you did as a child and, and perhaps you haven't thought of it this way, perhaps you have, but the fact that you are bilingual and you've gone through that process in your cognitive development that you've had to work out ways and 27,000 different ways of how to get your message across, what tone, what inflections. And by transitioning through different languages, you learn that skill and you have that toolkit, for want of a better word, that you can go to and, well, how can I present this in a different way? And I know as a coach working with different um, learning skills, different personalities, you come up with a multitude of ways that you can make sure that you're going to get that message across. And I think that that responsibility, again, coming back to being creative, if it doesn't land the first time, you've got to go away and find another way. Don't don't take it personally. And the same thing goes for change management. Mm. You know, you really, you know, we know that there's, there's going to be, you know, a spread of adoption. And so, again, you need to just... Dance. You know, t- yeah, dance. It's, it's dance. You need to twist, <laughs> twist and turn depending on, you know, who, who your audience is, but knowing what your greater vision is around the change management and it's a journey. All of these things are a journey. Mm. Um, and I and love, I love that thought of having a dance because yeah. it brings light into it. You know, it takes it onto another another level and not just taking everything so seriously make That's life right. of it bring bring fun into it and uh i would imagine that you've interviewed many potential employees over the years what advice would you give to women out there that are going for job interviews and want to make that lasting impression I, as you might have heard, I'm I'm very cerebral, but but I also uh, am an empath, so I feel people's energies. And so when I can sense someone's really nervous, uh, you know, I I try and work with that. Um, but I think be yourself. Try not to fall into that conversation whereby you're saying things that you think the interviewer wants you to hear. Mm -hmm. And if you are feeling nervous, say that. It's okay. I actually think it's a really beautiful thing to be nervous when you're in an interview because it means that you care and it means that you really want it. And as a manager and as a leader and, you know, recruiters, they want to see that and you can't fake that. No. And I think it's really beautiful to say, gosh, I'm feeling really nervous. 
um, because I really want this. And it doesn't have to be trite or, again, performed. You can't script that. I think it's really powerful to be able to tell your story. The first question that's often asked is, tell me about you. And the people that leave a really lasting impression or have done so are the people that can quite neatly summarise who they are and what they're about in Mm. terms of their values in a few minutes. Mm. Different to just reading off their CV. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to create a story. Correct. And don't and don't point form. Your life is not in point form. Correct. That, that that's one of my biggest things is please don't point form. <laughs> create a story. And what else can I add to that? As a as someone that's recruited many people and interviewed I haven't recruited that many people, but as someone that's interviewed a fair amount of people. Another key, the the challenge is, is generally, particularly with lawyers, you've already done the filter on paper. So the technical aspect is vetted to an extent. Tick. Mm -hmm. But the the big, the really big... uh, kind of sometimes black hole and the risk, I guess, if I want to put it that way, is how in an hour or in a series of two or three one-hour, you know, get-togethers, one formal, a couple informal, do you really get to the essence of how someone's going to show up and more to the point, how they're going to show up in their natural state? Because let's face it, interviewing or being an interviewee, that's a learned state for most mm. people. That mm. doesn't tend to be their natural state, particularly when you're asking the behavioural questions. They're not natural questions. Mm-hmm. So I developed a set of questions that I used to help me get that information and then... Um, for me, it was also very much a gut read. Yeah. Because I must say when I reflect back on people I've interviewed uh, or, um, uh, you know, or if there's just been some niggles where I thought, oh, gosh, this might, this might become an issue or a problem uh, or this is something I can see that's holding them back. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you can, you know that and, and it's really been my gut that has given me that information before I might have seen it play out, you know, in reality. Yeah. And so how do you tap into, you know, how do you, how do you when you're sitting on the other side of that, um, how do you find that out? Well, the good news is, is that we've got the internet and I know when I was, you know, a baby lawyer going for jobs, Uh, All I had was articles, you know, like literally I go to the library and say, oh, what had lawyer X written an an article on some bit of case law or some bit of new legislation. Whereas now we've got the power of the internet and podcasts are a thing. So you can, you know, if you really want to get to know someone a little bit more than just doing a, a Google search, I'd really encourage that 
I think particularly when you're dealing with someone that has an, a social influence or has an online profile, use that to your advantage because then you're also going to be able to ask some really pointed questions because I think one thing that is forgotten is that an interview is absolutely a two-way street. And yeah. the gel, like that gel, that glue needs to be felt and exist on both sides. So the hand movement that you're using is a gain and you're having a dance. A dance, yep. <laughs> Last I know, dance, I know. Lisa. <laughs> I know we're, we're, we're running out of time and you've got to go to another meeting. So I'm going to wrap this up with two more questions. What are some of the things that you do in your everyday routine to make sure that you stay connected with your voice and that your voice is ready in action for every conversation? Breathing is tapping into my breath is super important. Mm. I have learned to tap into my breath before I leap into the thought that jumps into my head. Again, it's about creating space because sometimes when you leap into, you know, when you leap into the conversation without giving you that space, your timing might be off, uh, it may be that what you're saying is slightly off. And so sometimes it's nice just to, to sit back, particularly with people that you don't know, so that you can almost sort of read the air a little bit. Mm. So br- tapping into the breath is super important. I think just connecting in generally. So how am I feeling today? Am I tired? Am I feeling nervous? And just recognising all of that. And almost saying, I see you nervousness, you know, I see that you're tired. Um, And so then you can adapt a little bit or perhaps be a bit kinder if your expectations are right up here. Mm. They're probably the the top two things other than self-care generally. So making sure, you know, I prioritise sleep. Um, I nourish my temple, what I call my precious temple, Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I know, for instance, if my ho- if my throat or my voice is being affected, whether that's losing it or it's becoming hoarse, then actually I tap in energetically and I ask myself, what's going on here? Yeah. And it could either be uh, that I'm not actually saying what I need to say and so then I'll journal that out or I'll have a conversation, the conversation that I need to have to somehow release that. Um, but as women as well, I want to add in that, you know, this whole throat centre is so much connected to, you know, our creative centre, you know, our birth centre. And, you know, that's not birth to, you know, the miracle that is life, but also the birth to ideas and creativity. Mm. And so I've actually... Uh, done some workshops on you know figuring out this connection because it may be that and this might be too much information but I want to say it anyway you know we need to to honor our cycles you know our feminine cycles and so sometimes we're not we're not feeling like we want to stand into our power and our voice may reflect that 
So well, then you need to a, kind of you yeah, know, you, you own that. Uh, and thank you for going there um, because, you know, you and I will pretty much go to any conversation. But um, your cords actually swell when you're in the cycle, which is something that the general public don't know. And as as an opera singer um, or any singer, female singer out there, when you're in your cycle for those first two or three days, uh, we don't sing because mm. the cord just will not operate. And I think that that's a really powerful observation for you to understand that if you're going into a high-pressure situation, on day one or day two of your menstrual cycle, it's going to feel more awkward than it would same time next week. Mm. And that's something that you need to navigate around. How are you going to best support and and nurture and be tender to that space rather than being harsh on your space and beating yourself up in that moment? Correct, which will then filter through your voice, right? It's just such a compounding problem. And I think that there's another one-hour podcast just in that little piece of information. (laughs) So, Anna, just to wrap it up, can you tell us what's next for you and, and how can people follow you? Thank you, Lisa. So as I mentioned earlier, I have decided to step away from my corporate career and 2021 is uh, all about me putting my entrepreneurial shoes on and my mission is to help law and business adapt to the digital age. I have a website, analazinski.com, where I have a suite of products which are designed to inspire the inner innovator in you. And I'm also running several online communities. Uh, Instagram, my handle is at Legally Innovative. It's my full name on LinkedIn. And I've also, speaking of voice, I've also really enjoyed foraying into Clubhouse, which is all about building one's audio brand. And stay tuned on that because Lisa and I were just uh, connecting in before this recording and um, we are going to be co-running a masterclass around around that and how do you find your voice in an era where audio is the next big thing Mm. so um I'm kind of online uh, a lot and I'd love to hear from you. I, I, you know, I try and respond to messages as much as I can, but please send me feedback or any further questions that you might have. I, I genuinely mean that when I say I'd love to hear from you. Thank you, darling. Look, I think that uh, one thing that I can tell the listeners in knowing you, Anna, personally, is that you do create space for everyone. I've always spoken a lot about that today. And for me, space equals respect. And respect is something that you are absolutely abundant with. And I thank you again for being here, taking the time, sharing your genius with with the world and your experience. And I wish you every success in your new venture. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's, as I said, it's it's a privilege and an honour and what a gift it is to know to know you. Thanks for joining me today to strengthen your voice. You want to be heard and you deserve to be heard. We're here to make sure that the woman's voice is heard. I'm Lisa Lachlan Bell and together we are The Woman's Voice. Thanks to our official sponsor, The Voice Draw. For more information on your voice, go to thewomansvoice.com.au.